Bibles and you can turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. As we continue on through this epistle. And right this morning we're going to have our Lord's table also this this morning. We don't usually have it on a holiday uh, Sunday just to protect the Lord's table because the Lord's table is for those who are believers. And um, so that's why we do not do it on the first Sunday when there's a holiday. First Peter chapter 2, let me read verse 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And verse 13, submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether a king as one in authority. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, as we look at the Word of God, as we think through it, give us understanding. And Lord, give us an understanding of the Word of God so we can think properly as believers. And I pray our proper arranged thoughts would lead us to practice the Word of God the way it ought to be. Lord, give us the strength to be able to do that on a regular basis until, Lord, we mature, uh, go from children to go to an adult in our thought, spiritual thought life, and that you would give us through that strength to live the Christian life and to be the people that we ought to be. And I pray that you would do that today with this passage. In Christ I pray, amen. Now the exhortations that Scripture has presented already have been designed and are designed for believers to prepare. And prepare for what? To equip them for life, to live the Christian life in this world. The last time we were in 1 Peter, we received some good scriptural counsel concerning our true identity as Christians. Because if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then who you are is really important. Verse number 9, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in Scripture, we already have been instructed that as disciples of Christ, we are chosen people who form God's new people. We are a priesthood of believers. Uh, We are people who are holy and different. We are people for God specially to possess. We are light. We are somebody. 
and we, are, we have God's mercy, so we really have nothing to fear. So in this list that is on the screen there, I highlighted the fact that Christians are no longer people groping in the dark. Christians are not only people who live, uh, they are people actually who live in the true light because they are light. And brethren, spiritual light is to our spiritual existence life. Again, in our text, it says, he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a, it's a, a light that is beyond description. And to be Christian means to be taken out of this horrible darkness, out of this life of sin and shame and evil, and to begin to live a new life, to have a new start. It means now that you belong to him who says, like in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. So Christianity is to belong to God who is light, and in him is no darkness at all, it tells us in 1 John. It is a realm of light and of glory and of holiness and of purity and of peace everlasting. See, we are, as it says in Ephesians, the inheritance of the saints in light. Even in Thessalonians, or excuse me, even in Corinthians chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, it says, and even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ. Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Christ's sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So this, is, this also implies that if you are a born-again believer, that you are light, that you never had light in you before, and without Christ you never could or would have acquired any ever. And why is that? Because it says in Ephesians, we were, we were formerly darkness. But since you came to believe in Christ, what does it say in the word of God? Now that you are light in, now you are light in the Lord. So this is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It shows that a Christian is a person who undergoes the most vital change that affects their whole being, the seed of their personality, and their inner person, including their affections, their mind, the way they think, and their will, what they actually will to do in their life. So before conversion to Christ, you and I were full of darkness. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We were ignorant of God, ignorant of our need of salvation. We were ignorant of our eternal destiny. We also hid away from the light, lest our evil deeds would be exposed. 
we actually led an unfruitful spiritual life leading on to, only to destruction and eternal death. But after conversion to Christ, we were no longer darkness. We were not ignorant, no longer ignorant of ourselves. We were no longer ignorant of the purpose of life, no longer ignorant of our need of salvation, no longer ignorant of our, our eternal destiny. Our, our lives brought, were brought into the light and we saw things as they really were, like we never saw them before. So in other words, Christians, if you're in the light, you actually have the key to living on this earth. You realize that, right? You have the key to life. And what is it? Well, it's, it's simply put like this. You turn to Christ You seek God the rest of your life. You give yourself to the service of his plan. That's the key to living in this world. And what is your motive for all that? God's glory. That's your motive. That is the key to living in this world. That's the key to, if I may say it like this, survival in the world. You know, men and women today feel lost and and astray in the world. All you have to do is is take a glance at people. Most of them have their heads down because they're on their social media, of course. But if you look at modern art, if you look at poetry, if you look at novels, if you just take five-minute conversation with a, a sensitive unbeliever, you'll be assured of the fact that they feel lost. They feel like they have no direction. So in in an age that has won a a higher degree of control over the forces of nature than ever before, this seems quite odd, but it's really not odd at all. It's actually part of God's judgment, which we have brought down really on ourselves by trying to feel too much at home in this world. We have set our faces against the idea that one should live on the basis that there is something more than this world to live for. We have, ourself, we have set ourselves against that thought. But according to Scripture, there is something more to live for than this world. And there's a way to live it also. That means you are to walk in accordance to your calling. And Christians are called to be children of God. And real born-again believers walk in the light, and the light magnifies all the darkness so we can see what's really going on. See, God wants us to know what happens to us in salvation. He wants us to know who we are so that we start living according to who we are. Understanding your identity in Christ is essential for living the Christian life. That's what Peter has been talking about so far. It's not what you do as a Christian that determines who you are. I said this already. It is who you are that determines what you do. Now, this brings me, this Lord's Day, into the next section of 1 Peter, 
that now deals with the subject of submission. We have gone from the subject of salvation and understanding and wrapping our minds around what salvation is and what it means in our daily life to now the subject of submission. In other words, you can't understand what submission is and how to submit until you understand salvation and what happened to you and who you are because you are now a believer. So once we grasp what God has done for us in salvation and what God has called us to be, now, now we can delve into what we are to do. What we are to be before the eyes of men. How we're to look to the world. But before we can properly submit to others, like we're going to see in the rest of this passage uh, next time, if we're, before we can submit to the state and to the magistrates, before we could submit to the household of people like masters and other masters that are going to be in our life, and before a husband and wife could submit to the Lord and each other, then we have, as God's children, to understand that we, as God's children, living in this world, must submit to a particular course of conduct. Yes, we are to submit to a particular course of conduct. And so that brings me to this portion, and that's the duty of the Christian is going to be subjection. From chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse number 12, it's going to talk about submission. And so this morning, we want to look first that the Christians can never forget that they live in the world as aliens and strangers. I'm even going a step further saying that we live in the world as spiritually, spiritual homeless people. That's who we are, all right? And of course, in Scripture, because I covered some of this before in the beginning of the book, the first thing is that we are strangers in the world. And if you notice in verse number 11, it says this, Beloved, of course, he is addressing them uh, as, his, as the children of God, and he says, Beloved, an endearing statement, of course, uh, and he says, I urge you. So he's saying with great urgencies to those who are uh, receiving this letter as already believers, I urge you as aliens and strangers. That's the first thing he wants to remind them of as the second time he's saying this in this particular book. He's saying, listen, you're just temporary residents in this world. God's chosen should really quickly realize that they are visiting strangers in a place that is not their home, and it never will be their home, so don't try to make it your home. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. And the strange thing here in this passage of Scripture is that these people were at home, but their conversion to Christ turned them into aliens and exiles within their own culture, making them spiritually homeless. Even though in many respects Christians become socially marginalized people, the Apostle Peter is not telling believers to escape from society. He's not telling us to retreat to some commune. He's not telling us to become a monk. 
He is saying, be deliberate to live an alien lifestyle as you participate in the world. Don't try to leave it. Try to live in it the way you ought to live in it. So he is saying, listen, as alien and strangers realize that's who you are, don't try to get away from that. You're not going to change that as a believer. But live there. All right, so Christians are strangers in the world. A second thing he mentions here in verse number 11 is that he uses the word aliens and strangers together, mixes them up. But the word alien, the word is used of those who are are temporary residents, again, but not permanent settlers in the land, those who have a deep attachment and a higher allegiance to another sphere. We have been called to be citizens of another kingdom. Our mandate, then, is to live according to a higher standard, keeping in mind our alien nationality and our temporary residency. Our higher allegiance is that the chosen's higher citizenship is heaven. And we are, the, we are here only for a short period of time to reach a world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like it says in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. And then what? From which we also eagerly await for a savior, savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not home. And while we remain here, Christians are awaiting to be fitted and transformed into our eternal state. But until that time, we are to do something. We are to live a certain way. So true, true Christians are then an alien society, living within a society, members of the kingdom of God, but aliens on earth. And what makes us so different? Well, we are governed by the word of the living God. We are born again by the word, and we are made spiritually mature by the word of God. We are different because we obey a higher authority. God is our authority. Jesus Christ is our master. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We are given the ministry also of reconciliation. We have been called to be ambassadors of another kingdom here on earth. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithany, and who are chosen. So we are those kind of people in this world. And so we Christians, as aliens to this world, have been called by Christ to bring the word of God, the gospel, to a world steeped in spiritual darkness, and in particular, in our time, to our own unique postmodern culture. Because we know from Scripture that what people need the most is Jesus Christ, and they don't know they need that. Jesus has entrusted to us the church, And in the church are to be found the followers of Jesus Christ. He's entrusted to us the message of salvation. And that message is, of course, in by grace alone, through Christ alone. That is the message that we have. Therefore, we are not merely chosen for heaven. We are chosen for earth. So the destination of the elect while while they're on earth is to move through this world 
And while we move through this world, we are to demonstrate a lifestyle of a stranger from another kingdom and an alien from another place with the goal to proclaim the gospel and to live out our ambassadorship as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's what we are to do. So that means we, as God's people, as God's children, are living in this world, must submit to a particular course of conduct. We must. This is where submission must start. If we don't start there, we can't submit to anybody else. If we don't understand this, we can't even go to the rest of the passage of Scripture because we have to understand this first. And it has to do with us. It has to do with our internal being, what's going on inside of us, what we understand about who we are and the power that God's given us to live the Christian life. So that must be what we are concerned about this morning. We must submit to a particular course of conduct. And it's a course of conduct that actually can be evaluated. It can be understood. It can be lived out. And so the duty of the Christian, again, being subjection, is that the Christians Christians are to live out their alien status with appropriate conduct. There's a certain way God wants us to live. It's the way that really gets other people's attention. It's a way that brings glory to God. And, of course, understanding that and thinking of that, we see that under that is that believers can no longer, you and I can no longer operate on the basis of sinful desires and passions, which we always operated on before. Again, look at verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, to wage war against the redeemed part of you. That's what's happening. So so immediately we become a Christian and know what we discover as a Christian, we're in an eternal warfare. There's a struggle going on us, and that struggle really never ends. But there's an assumption made by Paul, by Peter here in this text, and that the assumption is this, that believers in Christ Jesus can carry out what Scripture is urging us to do. And what, what is Scripture urging us to do? To abstain from fleshly lusts. So then Christians are to avoid, to keep themselves free from, the impulses that belong to the flesh and the craving of the sinful man is called the lusts of the flesh. And anything in this world system can become a source of sinful desire. The fleshly body can be the source of sensual desires and lusts. These desires extend to to food, to drink, to sexual gratification, and way beyond to other desires, which reach out for an object in order to find some pleasure and, to some, and some satisfaction. There are, there are two words in Scripture and in the New Testament that actually can be defined the word flesh. The first one is soma, which means 
body or body parts. Uh, the next one is the word sarks, right? This is the word used here in Scripture. Sarks is a term that is often referred to as the fallen, corrupt human nature. To be born in the flesh means that we have no inclination towards spiritual things. In reference to God, the flesh is spiritually dead. So the flesh is the sinful nature, the old man. Take your Bibles for a moment and turn over to Romans chapter 7, verse number 5. You're, you're turning backward to Romans chapter 5, uh, Romans chapter 7, excuse me, verse number 5 and verse number 18. And if you notice on that passage of Scripture, in that passage, that Paul says something very clear when it comes to our sinful passions. He says in Romans 7, verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And then down to verse 18, it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present with me, but the doing of the good is not. So that's that passage of Scripture is, is just letting us know that, that there is this warfare going on, that want, the warfare that is going to affect my desires, it's going to affect my passions, and it's going, the warfare is going to be, this is what God's will is, going, is for your life, this is what, what the will of God is not for your life. So the Spirit is the renewed power for the new man. For it says in Scripture, but I say... Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, notice, I want you to focus in on the point of Scripture of the desire of the flesh. As Christians, we have a new nature and a remaining old one. In other words, the new nature does not alienate the flesh. Christians have to actually struggle against the flesh until they enter glory. And of course, another passage, it says this, that the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. In Galatians, he is teaching us that this is definitely the struggle that we have. So there is a warfare between the new man, the spiritual, and the old man, the flesh. However, the war is not a war between our souls and our physical bodies. And why? Because our physical bodies, our physical body is not inherently evil. It is what the flesh is talking about, our inner man, that wants to do wrong, that wants to do the opposite of God, what God wants us to do. All right, so that means that this brings us to a second thing, that believers must implement a counter, a continual counter-warfare strategy against fleshly lust. For it says in our text, 
to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. So in other words, we have to do something about it. And of course, Peter has already armed us to do something about it. He's already given us ample amount of information. The Word of God gives us ample amount of information to be able to set up a counter-warfare attack against our remaining fleshly lust. So counter-warfare is necessary against the inner rebel. Would you agree that inside of you is an inner rebel? Right, You do have an inner rebel, don't you? All right, And be sure of this. The inner sinful desires continually, it's in the present tense, that means it's a continual waging of spiritual battle against the spiritual soul of the believer. It never lets up. So then the rebel voice needs to be turned down to a faint mutter, and the Spirit's voice, speaking through the Word of God, let me say that again, the Spirit's voice speaking through the written revelation of the Word of God. I'm not saying here that God's speaking to you and you hear voices. No, you hear God speaking through the Word of God. All right? And He is speaking through the Word of God so you become stronger. So in other words, as he is speaking through the word of God, the spirit needs to become consistently stronger and his voice needs to be louder than ever before. And the flesh, the inner rebel, must be weakened while the spirit is strengthened. So the the physical body and the spiritual soul is not at war with each other. So then what is that war? The war is between the renewed spirit and the fallen nature. See, the works, the works of the flesh are those that motivate, are motivated by the sinful heart. Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse number 19, which you should turn there in verse number 20, peel back the deeds of the flesh such as this. And, and I like how it, it really says it so simply to us in Galatians chapter 5. Did I say Ephesians? Galatians chapter 5, verse number 19. Notice what it says. The first, it starts out like this. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. You know what that means? It doesn't take a college degree, a master's degree, or a doctorate to understand what they are. It's evident. It's evident, in fact, to everybody. And what what are here's the list he gives, which are what? Is immorality evident? Impurity evident? Sensuality evident? Idolatry evident? Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger? Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this is evident to everyone that these things are part of what the flesh craves. This is what the world craves. This is what all movies are based on, one of these things. They will not make money if they don't have this stuff in there. They just won't. 
So they know it's a moneymaker. Because why? Everybody knows that these are the things that human beings are made of. So in other words, pagans, a pagan is a person who has a mind of flesh, a fallen mind, which is preoccupied with physical lusts and worldly desires. It is a mind whose thoughts are impure, who does not retain God in their thoughts and plans. They just have no reverence for the God of creation or his revelation. They have no reverence for Jesus Christ as he is portrayed in Scripture. So we are battling the remaining powers of our sinful nature. The former lust of the flesh is dragged into the new life. And the Apostle Paul clearly describes the former matter of life of every person, and you know the passage if you've been around. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked. And then he says this, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So that's who you and I were until we came to Christ. When we are born again of the Spirit, we now have a desire for holy things, things that actually please God and honor God. We, we are torn between the two desires on a daily basis. But remember, the more you say no to the old desires, the stronger the voice of the Spirit gets on pleasing God and doing what is honoring uh, and good before God. So that when we sin, our desires to commit sin, actually when we do sin, our desires to commit sin is more pleasurable, at least for the moment in the desire, than our desire to obey Christ. So what we want to do is we want to obey Christ first. We want that desire to be stronger, overbearing, and that we, the rebel voice we can't even hear anymore as we grow and mature in Christ. And remember, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. See, sin is what you and I do as believers when our hearts are not satisfied with what God says and with him himself. See, sin holds, us, holds out to us some promise of pleasure or happiness. That's what it does. In fact, the war going on inside of us is a war of desires. Have you found that yet? Have you struggled with that? You wake up every day struggling with those things? When temptation comes, what is temptation tempting you to do? It's, it, it's tempting you to bring your desires to a place where they're inflamed, where they, you, you want to do them, you want to go that way. And so that's what a temptation does. Now, a temptation is not sin, but a temptation dangled before you that inflames your desire in the wrong direction will bring you to sin. So we're still tempted with the idea that sin will make us happy. 
And as R.C. Sproul said, it will not make us happy, but it will give us pleasure. Yes, short-lived pleasure, which turns into guilt, which turns into grief, which turns into despair, which turns into depression. There's the warfare. See, the warfare, and believe me, if you are in a war, war has the ability to wear you down. It has the ability to wear you out. So, see, if we're not being strengthened in the Spirit of God, the war is going to wear us out in the wrong direction. We want to win the war, so we are strong soldiers of Jesus Christ, very clearly knowing and of the evident nature of sin and saying no to it and giving the power by the Spirit of God to actually say no. So then what is the basis in which the, the believer does operate? Well, here are some of the things that are already mentioned in Peter, and I'll just give them to you that the believer is to operate on the basis of their new desires and their new passions, desires and passions that are guided by truth. The truth about what God has done in salvation, that's why he took so long to get to where we're at in this text. He wants us to know all about salvation, who God is, what he's done, and what he's doing in your life, who you are in Christ. The truth about it, you're a new identity in, in Christ uh, what it really is that you are chosen people, that you are a priesthood of believers, that you are a holy and different, that you are a people for God specially to possess, that you are light, that you are somebody, that you have God's mercy. And then also the truth about your new relationship to sin. Now, I want you to take your Bibles if you're not there already. Look over back to Romans chapter 6. You do have a new relationship to sin as a believer. And what is it in Romans chapter 6? If you notice verse number 6, it says this. Knowing this, do you see how that starts out? You know what that's saying? This is what you already know. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So what is my new relationship to sin? Sin has no authority over me anymore as a believer unless I give it authority. Unless I listen listen to my old rebel voice and I say I give in to it. See, it has no authority over me anymore. I am no longer slave, a slave to sin. And if you are a believer, you are no longer a slave to sin. And then look down to verse number 11, same passage, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Here's the truth about your new master, who your new master is. It says in verse number 12, 11, it says, Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your immortal body so that you obey its lust. See, you, you already, let me just stop there, you already, you and I already have the authority to say, I'm not going to let you reign in my life anymore. You're no longer my master. Christ is my master. I'm going to listen to the voice of the Spirit and say no to those old passions 
and lust. In verse 13, it says, And do not go on presenting your, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't keep sinning the old sins that you've been sinning. Don't do that. You don't have to do that anymore. Why are you doing that? And then it says, but what? Present yourselves to God. As what? As those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to, to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. That's who are we, we are as Christians. That's the authority that we have as Christians, to be able to say no to those old passions and desires. And you know what? They're going to pop up at moments that you don't expect. I thought I dealt with that one before, but no, it's back. You know why? We didn't get to him yet, but Satan's behind the scenes wanting to tempt you away from what God called you to be. We're going to get to that later on in Peter. In Peter, but right now we want to stick to what, what he's talking about here. So, in other words, that one of the last things here is that the truth, the truth about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, the Holy Spirit, what is the Spirit of God doing in your life? He's cleaning you up. He's making changes in our lives, bringing us in, con, into conformity to the will of God. And this conformity happens from the inside out. We are changed from the inside out. See, God wants us to see the fruit of what the Spirit of God is doing on the inside. And so the goal of the Christian life, as it says in the, the passage here in Romans, the goal of the Christian life is righteousness. It's to pre- present our members so we do what is right. What is right before God, that is. We are being sanctified so that we do what is right. Well, let's turn back to First Peter for a moment, and I want you to go back to chapter 1 and verse number 15 and 16, because there it says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Remember that passage? Don't want you to forget that one. All right, so the holiness comes out in our behavior because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in our words, in our actions, in our righteousness, in our fear of the Lord, in our service, in our good works, and the fruit of desiring others to come into the kingdom of God are all part of what the Spirit of God is doing in us. And of course, that means this, that without turning there, the book of Romans, it says, There, uh, it gives really a pointed instruction along the same lines where the Apostle Paul says to the Christians in Rome, look what he says there. It says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So if you notice here, there's the putting off and putting on language. We put on the armor of light, 
in order to lay aside the deeds of darkness and to live properly while in the day. A list of sins is given, sins which are done for the most part under the cover of darkness. And when you are are armed with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light, it will expose the sin so that your desire will be to want to put them aside and to make no provision for the survival of the flesh. You want to starve the flesh, right? That's what you want to do. You don't want to feed it. You want to starve it. Then what happens in turn, if you lay it aside and you starve it, it will shrivel up and die. That's our old passions and desires. It will sh- they, they will shrivel up and die. So the Holy Spirit is making this change in us through the truth, the Word of God, and He's doing it in your mind. The Word and the Spirit, they always go together. They should never be separated. The Word of God transforms us so that we develop deep biblical understanding and convictions, and then our consciences will not allow us to live against those convictions which come from a transformed mind because we're listening and we desire to do what's right. We want to live in a pleasing manner before the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ in all our behavior. That's the ultimate desire of a believer. And then the goal is the glory of God. I want my life to bring glory to God. Now, all that for this reason. This inner commitment to live before God in all our behavior is accompanied by, in our passage, a duty that we all have as believers to live responsibly before unbelievers. Don't think you and I are not responsible for living the way we ought to in front of other people. Don't ever think that. Because you're going to find out this morning that that's what we're not, we're supposed to live in a a proper way before other people. And so now, that brings me to the next thing, and it's this, that believers are to maintain a good conduct before the eyes of their non-Christian neighbors. Now look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse number 12, what it says. Once he says this in verse 11 about this inner struggle, now we can live in a way that we can go before our neighbors and know it's the right way to live. It says this in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Right? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile is really the word we get ethnos from or ethnic from. In other words, let your behavior, your way of life be excellent among any ethnic group you find yourself who have no knowledge of the true and living God, who live in spiritual darkness and are dead in trespasses and sins. You're to live a certain way. Now, don't forget Some of the Jews and the Gentiles who live among them were no longer pagans like they once were. Now they're Christians. They are now the people of God. They are the living stones in God's temple. And for this one reason, this is why they're slandered. 
and they're maligned for following Christ. Notice what it says in verse number 12. So that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers. So what, what the Gentiles, they don't know God, right? And they, what they do is they look at you and they want to slander your life. They want to find something in your life they can slander you by. Now, we're talking about words. Coming against you with words. You know, like when people go on Facebook and they say things because they don't want to look at people face-to-face, they say it on Facebook, right? Don't they? And they use Facebook as a medium in a very bad way. Christians, you ought not to do that. Anything you put on Facebook, you better realize that God's reading it too. So if you want to vent your stuff, you better vent it on your knees before God in prayer so when you get up, When you write on Facebook, you can present yourself excellently to the Gentiles reading your stuff, right? Because I don't think you get lower, lower than venting your garbage on Facebook or coming against somebody with words on Facebook when you can't call them up on the phone and speak to them face-to-face. That's low. I mean, that's, that's below the carpet. See, we we ought to be different as believers. In fact, if you look at what it says back at cha- in chapter two, verse number twelve, which we didn't get there. Or, excuse me, not yeah. No, let, let's look at cha- uh, First Peter chapter four, verse three and four. We didn't, we didn't get there yet, but Peter mentions the difference in lifestyle after one comes to Christ. And this is, this is where the believers are, are maligning them. And, and why are they maligning them? You're no longer part of us. Now you believe in Jesus? You, you don't do what we used to do. We used to have fun together. We used to enjoy each other. We used to go drinking, you know? Go smoke a little doobie. Yeah, you know, that's true. Or whatever else they did, right? You don't do that anymore. What happened? Right? Look, look what he says in, in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Look at verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. You see what they're doing here? They're saying, hey, come on, you once, we once partied together. We were, were willing to do all kinds of mischief together. And now, now you're quoting scripture to me? You holy roller Bible thumper. Come on. You're brainwashed. That's what they say. You're no more fun to hang around with. When you get over this religious phase, come back, look us up, and we'll have a good time together. See, they were upset. They were losing people from their community to the gospel. And that's where they came against them. Have you, anybody come against you? Since you've been a Christian, even in your own family, mom, dad, sister, brother, cousins, right? They come against you. Why? You don't do what they used to do. You're not the same. You're not as fun as you used to be. 
And, the, you know, the primary form of persecution that we do find in Peter is believers were, exper- were experienced verbal abuse. They were, they were accused of being wrongdoers right here in verse number 12. In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, they're insulted. In, in chapter 3, verse 16, they're spoken against. In chapter 3, verse 16, they're also slandered. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, they're, they're mocked. And, of course, they do experience, because of that, fiery trials physical persecution, it does lead to that. So the Christians have a lot of pressure to adapt to Roman values, to adapt to to customs and, and the culture. See, they were expected to follow Roman ethical and moral standards, which were completely different than Scripture. They had pressure to be pro-Roman and show loyalty to Rome. They also were pressured by the Roman cult of emperor worship. You know, Rome went through phases of government, and the, the, the synod and, uh, were no longer to keep control in Rome, so they went to more of a dictatorship or a Roman emperor worship. He's the supreme one. He's the one we're to listen to. He's the one we're to follow. Even the confusion of what good meant. For the Roman, it meant one's duty to the state and to the city, rather than a moral and ethical, practical uh, nature, the nature of good works that Christians were doing. See, Christians were citizens of heaven rather than citizens of Rome. That means Christians were naturally marginalized and rejected. So mark this truth on your calendar. Christian followers of Christ, the very goodness of God in your life can be an offense to a world in which goodness is regarded as a handicap. I said that already, but I want to say this. However, however, excellent behavior and visible good works among the heathen can have a powerful attention getter, a powerful attention getter. Now, go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 12, and let's look at the next part. It says this. It says in verse number 12, it says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slandered you as evildoers, Here it is. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, that's an interesting passage of Scripture, a very difficult one, actually. What does the day of visitation mean? See, does the day of visitation mean the day of inquisition? before earthly magistrates, because Peter is going to start talking about that. Is it secondly the day of judgment? The day against unbelievers? A day of judgment against unbelievers and led them to realize that they were wrong in accusing believers unjustly? The day on which God will vindicate the good behavior of Christians and will drive 
the hostile accusers to see that they were wrong in the first place. Is that what it's saying? See, should we take it that the good behavior of the Christian will become a source of judgment against the unbelieving world? Or should we take it like this? The last one, the day of conversion, which was stimulated by the excellent behavior and visible good deeds of the believers. So if I were to leave you there right today and say, listen, go home, figure it out. Those are the three options. There may be one more, but it's way out there. All right? And go figure it out and come back and tell me from the text which one would you pick? Of course, there's only one meaning. There's only one interpretation. Now, you may are formulating now. I can see the wheels turning right now in your, in your brain. You're, you're thinking, which, which one would I pick? Well, I'll tell you which one I pick, so I'll release the suspense. The third one. So we, should we take the good behavior of the Christian? Uh, maybe the attention getter that leads the unbelieving world to the gospel in which they become Christians. Now this sounds a lot like what Jesus was teaching in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But I want you to notice something else in our passage of Scripture in verse number 12, because it's important not to miss it. The last part of the verse says, and as they observe them, it says that they, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, now, what is interesting about this section here is that as they observe them means that the unbelievers watched over a period of time in which the observer reflected on the particular behavior of those who follow Christ. This prolonged observation may have given an attractive alternative to the pagan way of life that was absent of such excellent behavior. In fact, I already mentioned that believers have been referred to as light. We, we walk and live in marvelous light. So if we are no longer darkness, but now we are light, and we are to walk as children of light, the light that we have is his marvelous light. Then the light is not only to be heard in the preaching of the gospel, but also the living of the gospel. If we read the rest of the passage from Matthew chapter 5, Jesus also said this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so believers are not merely chosen for heaven, they are chosen for earth. 
And I've already said that the destination of the elect while they are here on the earth is to move through while demonstrating an alien lifestyle with the goal to proclaim the gospel in order to win others to Christ so they will become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just say this. If you're under persecution, are you going to be able to freely preach the gospel? No, you're going to get shut down in a second. But if you can live the gospel and see the people that are maligning you and slandering you can see something way different. Now, when someone maligns someone and slanders them, what's the fleshly reaction? You want to to slap them, right? You want to do something to them to get back at them. There's the vengeance part of the, the sinful nature. But what if you don't? What if you do the opposite of what they're expecting when they come against you? And they do, you do this over and over again, and, and they have this prolonged observation about, wait a minute, these Christians respond completely different than what we're used to. And they go back home and they think about it. Wow, man, can I do that? Can I respond the way these Christians are responding to this persecution, to this slander, to this being maligned and spoken evil of? Can I do that? They probably would conclude no. So then we are to demonstrate an alien lifestyle with the goal to proclaim the gospel in order to win others to Christ so that they will become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the possibility of conversion to Christ by unbelievers due to the good conduct of Christians which result in them glorifying God on the day of judgment Why do they glorify God on the day of judgment? Because they are now part of the people of God, where before they were not part of the people of God. But the conduct of the Christian got their attention. But let me say this. This verse does lend expression to the concept of missions. Missions as being present where you're at living the way you ought to as a believer, that being undergirded by the visible or the the verbal proclamation of the gospel. The gospel has to come in. You can't win anybody just by your behavior, right? So don't don't even think that you're going to walk around living like you ought to live and then people are going to just follow, you know, following you and, oh, you're so different. Let me, what's your secret? I mean, that could be. All right, when you're on your job, that could be if they keep looking at your life and looking how you do things and, and seeing that you're different than everybody else and they take a liking to that even though they know they're so different. All right, somewhere down the line, if you get their attention, the verbal proclamation of the gospel has to, be, has to come in, right? All right, now, saying all that, this is where this passage makes sense. Look over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 15. 
It says this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Do you understand what's happening here? They're looking at their life, and they're saying to them, hey, man, why are you so different? Now you have a chance to give them what? An answer. To give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope that is in you, you're going to preach to them Christ. And notice what's tagged on the end of that verse. Yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, keep your conduct excellent even when preaching the gospel. Because you know gospel conversations can get pretty pretty heavy, right? And they can get pretty tense. If they get that to that place, back off. And pray that God would give you an opportunity to maintain your behavior in the preaching of the gospel with gentleness and with reverence. See, that's the conduct we must submit to so we can obtain the results. Right? If you guys are, if you and I are going to be fighting and, and doing the same thing the world does, doing the same thing we used to do as, as unbelievers, then we're not, going to, we're not going to get anybody's attention. Right? We're not going to get anybody's attention. So here's the bottom line. The conversion of the unbelievers seems to be the object of their exemplary conduct. That's the end result. I'm going to live this, submit to live this way so I can get others' attention. So when they ask me, why is my family so different? Why do you get up on Sunday and go to church? Why do you, your kids listen when we're in ShopRite and all the other kids are dra- grabbing stuff off the shelves and you know, on the floor, kicking their feet. How come, how, what are you doing? You're not going to give them a book on child rearing. You know what you're going to do? You're going to give them the answer of the hope that lies within you. You're going to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to do. And believe me, I know for a fact, in your family, it's going to come up. On your job, it's going to come up. In your relationships with people, it's going to come up. So you have a chance now to give the gospel if you haven't got, given, had a chance before. So I'll close with this. Are you living so that other unbelievers see your good works and want to know more? Are you living like that? Why do you live the way you do? You have to answer that question too. Well, I'll tell you what, we should live this way so that we can tell others about our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that has brought us into this marvelous light and has done great things. That's what we say, right? And believe me, in doing that, you are going to have gospel opportunities you never had before. But if you act just like everybody else, If you and I respond the way we used to, well, those opportunities are not going to come very soon. Amen? So let's take this and use it in our life and do it deliberately. 
Okay, we have the Lord's table this morning, so the men who are serving, please come forward. I do want to mention about the Lord's table, as I always do, that why should we partake in the Lord's table? Why should we do it? Because it is commanded for us to do it. The Lord says, do this in remembrance of me. Also, it confirms in the believers their true interest in Christ. Why are we here today to take the Lord's table? Because we're interested in what Christ has to say. We're interested in our Lord and Savior. Also, it manifests visible difference between those who belong to the church and those who belong to the world. So the Lord's table is only for the followers of Christ because it shows the followers of Christ that there are people who are examining themselves, they are confessing their sins, they are declaring the gospel of Christ, they are thankful, they are joyful, they, are, they know they're glory-bound, and it just shows, declares that we're different in our standing in God's family. And so this is like a banquet table. We're meeting God at a peace meal. The peace has been made between us and God by the blood of the cross, right? 